morning, everyone, or good afternoon, James. Um, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So um, we've got a very special room today. We have um, James Ferguson from uh, the Macro Strategy Partnership, and I'm really excited about this room today just because I think um, not only are James and his colleagues some of the most switched on macro thinkers that I know, but in particular, they have a differentiated point of view on what perhaps is one of the biggest issues in markets these days, which is the whole question of inflation. Is it transitory or not? Um, I thought the lead in song for today, Fleetwood Mac, Tell Me Sweet Little Lies, particularly appropriate. Let me just ramble for a couple minutes and then we'll get to James. Um, so, you know, we're approaching month end and I mean, trying to call the market day to day, week to week is a fool's errand. We never try to do this in this room. We're just trying to get the big picture right. And I think we've done a very good job of that. Um, risk assets, in my view, continue to offer um, return-free risk. Um, we still have wildly inappropriate monetary policy, as far as I'm concerned, against the backdop of, um, uh, of rising inflation. Liquidity picture continues to deteriorate. We've, we've talked about that time and time again. Equity values, uh, while they've come off, have not caught down to um, the adjustment we've seen in fixed income prices. Forget about where interest rates may yet go from here. Um, whether we get a recession or not, I'm increasing the view that we will. But more importantly, rather than trying to win that argument, win the IQ contest, I think it's a very unfriendly environment for risk assets. I'm not interested in winning the IQ contest. I'm interested in just trying to make money. That's what we try to do in these rooms, try to help people make money. Um, if the Fed does um, what they need to do, that is, if Jerome Powell does uh, discover his Interpol Volcker, assuming that he has one, which I don't believe he does, um, you'll see sufficient uh, uh, tightening that'll crack risk assets. If, on the other hand, they just don't have it in them because they're so politicized and they're clueless. You know, you've seen in recent days they were backpedaling and you had various Fed officials coming out saying, well, maybe we'll pause after a couple of hikes, yada, yada, yada. The market's going to vote with its feet and you're going to see... Um, Commodity prices, et cetera, continue to go up and to the right. I do note this morning, for the record, that oil is up another percent and a half to 112. As we discussed many times, the Fed can't drill for more oil. The Fed cannot grow more wheat. Um, so there's little little the one that they can do about some of these factors. James will speak about how uh, inflation is becoming more of an endogenous affair, and this is where it really becomes dangerous for the Fed. Um, and so given that so many assets were pushed up on the back of you know, the most reckless monetary policy in history, um, fueled solely by this you know, endless amounts of liquidity. Now that the tide's going out, I think it could get very ugly indeed. I continue to say that, again, equities and risk-free assets, equities represent return-free risk. Last thing I'll say before we get to James, um, you, some of you who follow me will know we did a, a podcast the other day, Grant Williams and Doomberg um, interviewed again. Uh, Bennett Tomlin and myself. This was a revisit from the podcast of last summer. We got the band, got the band, band back together, and you know, try to have a mark to mark assessment of what's going on. I don't know that factually anything has really changed. Just that the whole Luna debacle, I think, is um, having the effect of regulators forcing them to perhaps look a little bit more carefully at what's going on. The the public outcry to do something, I think, is going to uh, intensify. Um, and, you know, from my way of thinking, this crypto uh, crypto and Bitcoin and all the rest of it, it's, it's all about liquidity. 
and um, I think we're on that we're on the precipice of a complete collapse in crypto markets writ large. Um, you know, number no more go up, bro. Uh, and if you need more and more liquidity to push the price of the asset up, and there's no underlying cash flow, good luck with that. So, I think you know, crypto is in the process of break. I mean, I just noticed this morning Bitcoin. I don't mean to be too hyperbolic or sensationalist, but I see where um, Bitcoin is down almost five percent right now to twenty eight three about to go to a new local low. My initial price target uh, for over a year continues to be where this particular rally started from, which was the fall of 2020 when Bitcoin was 11,000. We can then get into a debate about, you know, whether it's worth anything, but let's just leave that aside. At any rate, James, I'm really glad you're with us. Um, I put up a couple of slides so far. I'm going to put the rest of them up as you speak. So uh, macro strategy. So, James, it might be useful to the audience because I don't think your, your firm is that well known in the States. Just speak a little bit about macro strategy, partnership, um, who you are, who your colleagues are, your experience, because you've got some gray hair as, as, as I do. Um, I'm really, really excited um, to have you here today. I think people need to have some perspective. And so just start off, maybe kick off a little bit about what you do, your background, and then get into the message. And as you're speaking, I will put the rest of the slides up. I'll put them up in the nest. Also, they'll be in my Twitter feed. So, James, you'll be able to speak to the slides once you get going on your presentation. So with that, James, the floor is yours. Welcome, my friend. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, well, um, uh, my backstory is I started my career out of university in, um, in Japan. <coughs> Sorry, I wasn't in university in Japan, but I started doing the Japanese market. And uh, um, I'd been moving towards uh, doing more of the, the macro um, type sort of theme. But uh, what really... Uh, created macro strategy partnership was that my uh, founding partner Andy Lees and I uh, were both invited by a hedge fund to write a chapter each for a book that he was publishing for charity um, that was um, where he asked for contributions from all the people who had seen it coming the Queen of England was famous for having said to a group of economists why did none of you see it coming um, and so that's why he thought that he would uh, give a bit of a platform to, to the few who had seen it coming. And by the way, um, the, the people who saw it coming were almost exclusively old Japan hands because um, it was very similar. Uh, the, the Great Financial Crisis was very similar, at least in setup, to the sort of thing that had brought um, the Japanese financial um, bull market uh, to an end as well. So that's how we, uh, that's how we set up. Um, and then, then we were joined by a third partner who was also with Andy at uh, UBS. Um, and we are all effectively guys who did macro, who found that we wanted to talk about the full um, gamut of things in macro space, but that our investment bank employers wouldn't let us um, tread on other people's toes. We couldn't, for example, talk about the oil price because it was a house view. We couldn't talk about bonds because that would, might contradict the house view. Uh, and so we, we really just um, kind of went independent so that we could still remain independent and, and say it um, as we saw it. Um, and that's what I'm going to, uh, to deliver to you today. Uh, very much um, the view, um, this is not, I don't think, in any way consensus. It's certainly quite contrary to uh, what the Fed and its 400 PhDs um, believe and think. But um, that's why I've gone a bit chart heavy on this, because I think it's very important to say things and present the evidence um, because otherwise it's just an opinion. Um, and I, I don't want to have any opinions, just evidence-based um, uh, most likely scenarios. 
So to kick it off, um, my first, I've split it, by the way, this um, into, to make it just easy to navigate, split it into sort of kind of four lessons that um, we learned from QE. These are not the lessons that they keep trying to tell you um, are the lessons from QE. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, James, if I may interrupt for one second, I'm struggling a little bit with the charts, but just have at it. I'll, I'll get them up in a couple of minutes. I only have up so far QE lesson number one. The others are coming. Just just bear with me. So people will be able to see them in a few minutes. I'm just, I'm just a little bit behind. It. So, so carry on, carry on. Right, right. Well, I, I, will, I will talk about what the charts say until George tells me that the charts are actually up. Uh, and then that, that should be fine. But I've split it into um, the four main lessons we uh, should have learned from QE. These are not necessarily the ones we did learn, or at least not the ones the Fed learned. Um, then um, briefly touching on what the cause of the inflation is. Again, this is not what the Fed believes to be the case. And Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, has recently explicitly said that uh, it's not his fault. He didn't create, uh, well, he did create a massive increase in money supply, but he seems to think that's got nothing to do with it. Um, this has happened before. It happened at the end of uh, the Second World War. So I'll show you what the cure is. It is very much a Paul Volcker um, type cure. Um, but then I'll discuss um, really the most important things for now, which are the eight reasons. Uh, actually, I say eight. I think it's nine. Um, the nine reasons why um, the Fed ha will have a lot of trouble um, doing a, a Paul Volcker. And that's even assuming that they've got the, uh, the cojones for it. Um, anyway, so starting from the from the beginning, first of all, what are the four lessons we should have learned about QE? The first lesson is that QE, people talk about QE as if there's no counterfactual, but there's a very obvious and clear counterfactual to QE. We can see what would have happened to money supply, or we can see what did happen to money supply, which on chart uh, one is the red line. But we can also see what would have happened to money supply if there hadn't have been any QE. Um, without going into any um, boring details, um, QE uh, basically shows up on the, um, the, the uh, commercial banks' uh, reserves at the Fed. So if we deduct the commercial banks' reserves from the Fed, we can see what, uh, from broad money supply, we can see what broad money supply would have done without QE. And you can see that not only would it have gone down, um, at least in the early days, 2009 uh, and, and 2010, but basically um, there would be no broad money supply growth in nominal terms at all for about seven years. Uh, and that would have been, uh, and that probably would have triggered you know, a positive feedback loop and something akin to, um, to the 1930s. But it was certainly um, a, an extremely um, dangerous environment. And so QE, when you have the backdrop as a banking crisis, is a very efficient and useful tool for preventing um, that sort of nominal money supply contraction, which is in the textbook defined as deflation. However, it doesn't have the effect that Bernanke was thinking it was going to have. I think he would have found it very weird to tell people that QE was inflationary. This is assuming he understood that. So instead, he argued that QE would make long-term bond yields go down. Now, if you look at chart two, um, I don't know if you can look at it yet. but that's No, no James, give me, just keep speaking to the charts. I don't have them up yet. Speak about right, the charts. Okay. It'll be up momentarily. So when, when you can see chart two, what you'll see is, um, that every period of QE is highlighted. Um, QE is the increase in, in, the, in the Fed's um, assets. So that's uh, shown. And then I've highlighted those periods when the, the assets are increasing with blue bars. Uh, and then I've got big red arrows pointing upwards, showing how bond yields went up each and every time we had QE during the post-Great uh, Financial Crisis period and how um, bond yields collapsed in between each bit of QE. 
Now, given the fact that the Fed's buying bonds, so obviously you'd think if, if all other things being equal, if someone's buying bonds in scale, um, that will push the price up. Um, and that's exactly what Bernanke's Fed um, said would happen. The price would go up and the yield would go down. But instead, the exact opposite happened. And the reason for this is that if you um, do QE, you're effectively, um, as a central bank, no longer doing money market operations and interacting with other banks. You're, you've changed the duration of the securities you're buying. You're going to buy securities now of long-term holders um, who are non-banks. And when, when you do that, you credit their bank um, accounts or the bank deposits, which is money supply. So effectively, what money supply is, and central bankers seem very um, cagey about admitting this, uh, with the notable exception of Mervyn King, uh, ex of the Bank of England, um, QE is basically an expansion of money supply. Now, the Keynesian theory behind what most of the Fed is doing, which is why we've, we've come to this um, very inflationary uh, spot, is that increasing money supply, especially if it's done by the central bank, is not inflationary. This seems quite extraordinary to any historian because you can go back to Roman times and see that debauching the currency um, is inflationary. But, but the Fed has a, a different theory and uh, Keynesian theory, and they're sticking to it. But um, they should have looked at the evidence of QE and acknowledged that it was very clear that QE made bond yields go up. And it made bond yields go up because without QE, we were looking at a proper money contraction deflation, which, of course, made bonds very attractive. In fact, the only attractive place for investors to put their money, uh, whereas QE suddenly changed all that, made it look more inflationary and chased that money out of bonds and into risk assets. And, and I could equally show you a chart showing that during each and every stage of QE stocks, uh, the S&P went up. <clears throat> and and um, the next chart along, um, which is chart uh, um, three, James, let me interrupt. We're actually in OK shape now. I'm putting them in. The first six charts are up. I'm going to feed the rest in as we go along. So, um, again, you can follow along in my Twitter feed or they're up in the nest. So, James, we have the first six charts up. The rest are coming. Keep carrying on. Brilliant. So, so um, yeah, just the, so the one with the sort of the, the blue vertical uh, uh, rectangular columns, that's the one I've just been talking about, which shows that during QE, Bond yields uh, very significantly went up, you know, at least 100 basis points each time. Um, the next chart along shows that uh, exactly the same thing happened uh, with the most recent um, bout of QE. We started off with bond yields uh, last uh, July at 0.5%. And of course, they're now basically around 3%. So um, they have sextupled uh, over that period. Uh, and more importantly, probably for the fact that we're about to go into QT, look what happened during the QT period. Um, their bond yields very um, recognizably came down. It doesn't necessarily exactly tie up timing-wise because it depends how aggressively the QE or the QT is being done. Um, but um, that's an important uh, lesson to learn. Firstly, from, uh, from QE, it has an impact, and that impact is inflationary. Uh, and therefore, QT will have an impact, and that in fact, impact will be deflationary, um, which I guess no one in this room is really going to have a big problem with, but the Fed still bizarrely does. So if we move on to the next uh, uh, slide, that shows QE lesson number three, and that is that it had, had and has nothing to do with bailing out or punishing the banks. So you can see that during each and every one of the QE, the three QE uh, phases we had after the great financial crisis, um, the press um, story is that it was all about bailing out the banks. The, the Fed was buying securities from the banks. Now, as I've just said, Actually, QE is quite expressly not about that. It's about buying securities from non-banks 
and therefore incre increasing money supply by accrediting their deposits. But if you have a look at this, this, is, um, uh, this chart shows that QE1, QE2 and QE3, all of which were supposedly, according to the, the fallacious argument uh, about the Fed buying securities um, at overpriced securities from the banks to help them out, you can see the three lines, the red, green and blue lines, are the Fed's, uh, the, sorry, the commercial bank's holdings of um, mortgage-backed securities uh, and treasuries um, and even uh, other um, government securities. And you can see that all of these holdings that the banks had went up during QE. So whoever the, the Fed was buying its assets from, it certainly wasn't the banks. Um, and it just goes to show the, the extent to which um, the consensus story still doesn't really understand what is going on with QE and QT, uh, even though the evidence is there in front of our faces. Now, the, the, um, the lesson number four um, partly goes to explain that. And this is the fact that the Fed has a very poor measure of money supply. The Fed's measure of money supply, they stopped publishing M1 recently and they stopped publishing M3, which is the broader measure, back in 2006. So we're really only left with M2. So you'd think the Fed would make a big effort to make sure that M2 was a, ro uh, a robust, solid representation of what money supply is. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And this is um, particularly, um, uh, proved particularly difficult around about the time of the financial crisis. Because as you can see from... Um, uh, chart uh, headed QE lesson number four, the M2 measure uh, of money supply, which is the blue line, actually went up quite strongly during um, the recession of uh, the great financial crisis. When the, a properly measured measure of money, broad money supply, which is the red line, uh, actually went down really sharply. So uh, the Fed was getting all the wrong signals um, in the, uh, during the crisis in terms of what was happening to money supply. One of the reasons why the Fed doesn't really believe in money supply is that their measure is so rubbish, um, it doesn't behave in rational ways, particularly not at moments of crisis. Um, but it's not that money supply isn't important, it's that the Fed has been too lax in, in, in measuring it properly and, and moving with the times. Now, to be fair to the Fed, if you look at the next slide, uh, the Bank of England had the same problem. Um, they also saw their official money supply growth uh, measure, M4, the blue line, going up during the, the great financial crisis when uh, a properly measured uh, money supply, um, the red line, was going down uh, and uh, money supply growth was, was heading uh, towards and, in fact, at one stage, even dipped below zero. Um, that red line that measures a properly measured money supply in this instance is not one that I've created but it's one that the Bank of England created uh, after the event. They went back and said that that just there must be something wrong with our measure of, of broad money supply. We've got to work out what it is. And what, what it was, was the fact that um, it includes uh, the financial sector. So you're trying to look at money supply as being the uh, deposit assets or, or the bank deposit liabilities of the private sector. And if you include um, um, bank subsidiaries, um, SPVs and the like, then you, you're, you're double counting and getting into all sorts of trouble. You do that as well if you include money market funds, which the Fed does, although the Bank of England never did that. Uh, you also do it if you leave out some bank deposits, which the Fed does. It leaves out large bank deposits. And it turns out that you also do that if you leave out things which should be included in bank deposits, but which uh, aren't for old fashioned methodological reasons. And these have become particularly important recently um, and they include the Treasury General account, which is the um, money, the bank account, if you like, that the uh, Department of the Treasury keeps at the Fed. And also the, um, the reverse repo um, 
uh, liabilities that the Fed has, because on in April of last year, the Fed uh, allowed money market funds to deposit um, their money in the reverse repo, and it went through the roof. And we'll have a look at that uh, in a second. So now I just want to talk about um, the cause of the inflation. Um, virtually no central bankers will admit this. Uh, in fact, they, they, they bend over backwards to argue that it really wasn't their fault and it might have been uh, Putin's fault uh, for creating an energy crisis. But don't forget, um, US uh, CPI was already 8% before two, Putin's tanks rolled and the oil price had already gone up sixfold before Putin's tanks rolled. And, only, and it's only gone up 15% since then. So all the move in uh, inflation and energy prices was all pre-Putin, really, to speak of. Um, no, the main driver was uh, was money supply. So if you have a look at money supply, the way Milton Friedman said you should look at it, not the way the Keynesians like to reinterpret what he says. He was very specific. He said um, the inflation comes from um, it's always and everywhere uh, a monetary phenomenon. But most people leave out the rest of the quote, which is that he's saying that it's the excess money supply over and above um, the amount of money required by um, real GDP. So if we look at excess money supply, uh, the way Milton Friedman um, talked about it, that's the blue line uh, on this chart, uh, the cause of inflation chart. Um, and you can see that that fits pretty reasonably well um, with um, CPI inflation, which is the red line. And then that enormous um, surge in money supply uh, that, we, that I've highlighted with the, the green ellipse, um, that was always going to make um, CPI leap to some extent. Uh, and sure enough, it has. We do know how to deal with this sort of problem. If you look at the, the next slide, the cure for inflation, after the Second World War, the US had had a massive increase in money supply during the war, but had suppressed um, CPI. In fact, they'd taken an awful lot of products out of the CPI basket. But more importantly, most household durable products weren't even available. Uh, stoves, fridges, cars, all the companies that made these things had turned over their production to, uh, to wartime um, production. And so um, there was a huge pent up uh, amount of uh, uh, interest in, um, in, in uh, consumption for the U.S. household sector after the war. It's estimated that a quarter of all U.S. households uh, in the first two to three years after the war bought um, a car, a stove and a fridge. Um, so there was this massive surge in, in expenditure and CPI inflation went up to 20 percent. And the Fed brought this under control by um, slamming on the brakes with money supply and um, bringing money supply growth down to uh, below zero, even in a 20 percent inflation environment. And within a year or two, that had resulted in CPI inflation, which is the red line uh, on this chart coming down to uh, below zero as well. So we know what you have to do. But the rest of this talk is going to be discussing the um, nine problems the Fed is going to have in doing this. So if you look at Fed problem number one, the first problem they have very, very obviously is that they are so far behind the curve. It, it, it's just laughable. Um, Havenstein, the, um, the uh, German central banker in charge doing the Weimar Republic and the, and the great hyperinflation in Germany, always refused to acknowledge that he was responsible via his money printing. And we seem to have a similar kind of um, Havensteinian level of, of, of blindness um, here with central bankers in the UK and the US as well. Um, not only historically, uh, as you can see here, does the, um, the long bond yield and the policy rate um, tend to be above the level of inflation. That's what keeps the lid on inflation. So, 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 so James, let me interrupt for one second. I know, and, and for all of you that don't know, James is doing a masterful job 
for your first time on Twitter, James, I'm blown away. Like so many of us older fellows with gray hair, uh, he wasn't too familiar with Twitter. And I have to take my hat off to you, James, just so you know. Um, by the way, everyone should – I'm going to put his his uh, Twitter handle up on the nest so you can follow him. Um, but just so you know, as you're new to Twitter, James, one of the best follows on Twitter is this guy whose Twitter handle is 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 Rudy Haber Haverstein, I think. So your comments are particularly on point. Ha- have at it, James. You're doing brilliantly. Keep going. Oh, brilliant. Okay, well, there, there we go. There's, there's, there's someone who's, uh, who's been dusting off his old uh, um, German hyperinflation uh, history books. Um, but, you know, this, uh, this seems to be a real problem, that the, the central bankers have allowed themselves to get incredibly far behind the curve. Not only were they not raising rates as inflation started to pick up, but they were still doing QE. Um, you know, in fact, technically speaking, the Fed is still doing QE. We, we just had another uptick in um, the securities holdings at the Fed. That's the last data point we've had, and it went to a new high. So, um, you know, those, these guys have just completely um, got themselves into a, a hell of a mess, and it's going to be really tough to, uh, to get back in, in front of the curve um, as a consequence of that. Um, the second problem they have, apart from sort of starting right at the back of the grid, um, is that they've already let inflation get not only um, quite serious in terms of headline, but in the old days, we used to consider that inflation was only temporary or transitory and nothing to worry about until or unless it got into wages. And you can see that the, um, the long run average um, wage price inflation rate has been about 3% with a plus or minus 1% either side of that. But we've gone surging right the way through to, to, to 6% um, wage growth, which is still actually negative in real terms because inflation is running even stronger than that. <laughs> Uh, excuse me. But it does show that, um, uh, you know, that the, the Fed is not only behind the curve, but they're also really late to the party. Inflation has got into wages. That means that the man in the street is more concerned about um, inflation and demanding higher wages than the Fed um, uh, is. And, that, and that's that, that's really quite dire. So the third problem the Fed has, apart from being uh, really behind the curve and really having to do a huge amount of uh, catching up, is that they don't necessarily appear to be aware of how um, QE works, uh, the mechanism of QE works. So um, this um, slide, Fed problem number three, illustrates the fact that it's only long duration assets, i.e. it's only securities that the Fed buys of more than about five years to maturity um, that actually are being bought off non-banks and therefore that are actually impacting um, money supply growth. And we can see this because the gray line shows you the amount of QE the Fed did. Lots of people talk about how QE, a proxy for QE is, is the size or, or change in the Fed's balance sheet. But that, that is not accurate. It's, a, it's specifically about the change in the Fed's long-dated um, securities. And you can see the two little uh, blue circles. These show that the exact match between the change uh, in money supply and the change in the Fed's um, um, purchases of these long-dated securities. So that appears to be, that's theoretically sound and appears to be borne out by the empirical evidence. Which brings us to Fed problem number four, which is um, a, an observation of last time we had QT. So we know what the, what the Fed's going to do with QT because the FOMC tells us. They say we're now going to do, the, the early indications are they're going to do 95 uh, billion a month um, which is, uh, you know, give me a running around, I think it's 1.2 plus uh, trillion dollars a year. But as we've just been looking at um, this, it matters an awful lot which securities they're letting to uh, roll off or, or, or are selling. 
And this mattered last time they did QT as well. So if the Fed lets uh, securities with less than five years to run roll off or actively sells them, um, which on this chart, um, Fed from number four is the gray line, you can see that there was quite a big decline in those um, securities um, when the Fed uh, did QT last time. But all of the impact from that is diluted or sterilized away. There's absolutely no impact from that at all. The green line, which you see no movement in whatsoever during QT, that's their long-term holdings. They're more than 10-year um, uh, treasury holdings. They didn't sell any of them. The red line shows that they did dispose of some of their mortgage-backed securities, which are also, of course, um, long-dated. But the really interesting one is the blue line, which shows that the natural roll-off rate uh, as their 5- to 10-year maturity securities start getting older, they more and more of them move into the sub-five-year category. Um, that didn't even follow the normal decline rate. During QT, they were actually buying some more of those um, securities back. So there's a very important point to bear in mind um, is that just because the FOMC says so doesn't mean the New York Fed necessarily follows instructions, whether it's it's being deliberately difficult or whether it doesn't really understand the nuance of um, what it's doing. Um, but um, that is a, a serious problem for the Fed because the New York Fed may not carry out uh, its instructions as adroitly and as efficiently as it would hope. Now, problem number five we've already mentioned is the fact that the Fed has uh, recently allowed uh, money market funds or what it calls 2A-7 firms. That's money market funds who have an average maturity of less than 60 days. Uh, allowed them to uh, deposit money at the Fed uh, in what are called reverse repos. Now, you can see that there was a massive increase in, in um, demand for reverse repos the moment the Fed made this rule change and money market funds have been very keen on depositing their money in the Fed. The problem with this is that the Fed has no control about whether when uh, and whether the money market funds will take these um, funds out. Um, and this therefore means that uh, this is very unstable from the Fed point of view if they're trying to control money supply because we're talking about over two trillion dollars here that could flow back into um, um, the official measures of money supply without warning. By the way, um, all the money that's sitting in the reverse repo is not included in money supply. Uh, that same goes for the, the Treasury General account. So what that leads to is probably the most important chart in this entire pack is Fed problem number six, which is that there are more than one way to measure broad money supply. And the Fed way of measuring it, M2, normally moves at exactly the same amount and time as uh, other more accurate ways of measuring money supply, which don't have uh, the weird stuff in M2 that, that shouldn't be in there. And they do have the uh, important new stuff that should be in there. But really importantly, not now. Right now, there is a massively different signal being sent by um, the Fed's M2 compared to, say, um, other ways of uh, rationally uh, of measuring money supply. We've just had a print that showed that we had the biggest ever drop month on month in um, money supply in April. And uh, I think the biggest um, from a percentage point of view in terms of a month on month um, move for 12 years. But this is entirely due to the fact that the Fed did some really weird seasonal adjustments, i.e. the biggest since 1967 from a percentage point of view, uh, and also doesn't include the changes in uh, the Treasury General account, which went up by $400 billion, uh, and also doesn't include the changes to reverse repo uh, and underlying unadjusted money supply, which is about another 50 to $60 billion. So although, officially speaking, we had um, in the month of April a sharp 
um, contraction, uh, even a record-breaking contraction uh, in money supply, that's only in the Fed's measure of money supply. And in a proper, um, more robust, theoretically robust way of measuring it, we actually had an annualized 20% plus growth in money supply. So this is, this is how you get policy missteps. When the Fed is looking at, at the story and thinking one thing is happening, and in actual fact, you know, the Fed's speedo is broken. James, James, can I ask you one question, please? Um, so you highlight a very crucial point, as you said, it's the most important uh, chart in the whole pack. Is it that they're just so ideologically rigid and with their 400 PhDs, the sort of intellectual arrogance of the whole thing? Or are they really, and you may say the answer to this question doesn't really matter, but I think it does. Or is, are they just so politicized or whitewashing the whole thing? And, and they know full well, they know full well that, they're, that, they're, that, they're, that they're screwing up the whole thing with, with their public proclamations. Which is it? Uh, I think I think what it what it is is very clearly groupthink. Um, so where did the groupthink come from? I think you p- can probably lay the original blame um, at Greenspan's door. Greenspan wouldn't allow uh, any non-Keynesian, i.e., a monetarist or an Austrian, uh, to even speak in his Fed, and that led to the Fed not employing any Austrians or um, or monetarists, and therefore the the whole uh, house became absolutely full of um, you know, capacity utilization, neo-Keynesians, whose theory claims that um, exogenous expansion of the money supply cannot even find its way into the economy, let alone be inflationary, despite right. all the evidence to the contrary. Right. So the problem is you've, you've got this groupthink now, which um, and they, they very deliberately ignored the lessons that had or should have been learned after uh, the QE of the GFC, and that's the really sad thing is we would we don't need to be in this position, but they refuse to because they don't want to acknowledge the basic tenets of QE. You know, if QE makes bond yields go up, that means that money supply creation is inflationary, and that goes to the very heart of their argument Keynesians versus monetarists, right? Are you James, the Keynesians are, would have to admit, yeah, James, are you ever um in your travels? on the quiet, able to have a conversation? Do we ever have any conversation with any of these Fed heads where they sort of admit, or there are a couple of them that realize maybe something is wrong, or some of them at least um, are wistfully think like, wait a second, we're not, something must be wrong here, or, or they just sort of carry on with their, with their intellectual arrogance? Uh, actually, um, neither of those. What they get is angry. Really? Um, they get very angry very quickly. And in my kind of very limited psychological experience that's what people who are suffering cognitive dissonance do you know they don't go that's an interesting point and i can see your evidence and we have to think about that they go they get angry really fast because they 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 know that their worldview is under threat and they kind of know that they've got nothing to stand on right it's it's, it's sort of it sort of uh, reminds me of that old the quote from voltaire uncertainty is an uncomfortable position but certainty is an absurd one i mean you know how, how bad do things have to, i mean what you're describing is basically things going to just get go completely off the rails and they're they're not going to realize what's going on until there's a complete car crash i mean what's going to stop them from carrying on the way that they are uh i'm not sure anything will <laughs> i mean that's the trouble i think you know when you've got i tell you what the situation reminds me of it reminds me of the famous quote about science that science progresses one funeral at a time um, you know, for, for the new ideas in science to gain currency, the old uh, guys who are blocking it and who refuse to acknowledge uh, the truth of it have to die 
before we can we can move on and and uh, that that's the problem you know these guys need to uh, to be sacked <laughs> it, yeah it, it seems like they need an attitude adjustment or as you know put it another way we always talk about you know one's going to you can get an education one of two ways either by precept or experience and it sounds like they're going to get a very expensive education unfortunately we're going to ones paying for it because they've just got, got a completely wrong framework for the way they're analyzing the problem so carry on sorry to interrupt but i, I just i just wanted to clarify that thank you thank you well uh, the, the sad thing is that um i had these conversations with uh, with these uh these sorts of people uh, at the beginning of the um of the qe uh, you know after the great financial crisis when when all the things we were saying were basically still theoretical and and we were saying you know look it's not going to be inflationary you'll you'll look look at what you're doing you're going to be pushing bond deals up, you're, and and they wouldn't acknowledge it. But now it's really sad because we've got so much evidence, and they still hold to the right the indefensible right. ideas. Right, that's fair. All right, carry on, carry on. Um, okay, well, this brings us to um, the third to last Fed problem. The third to last Fed problem is that even if the Fed wants to um, bring money supply growth down to zero to do what they did after the Second World War and stop. Um, stop the inflation in its tracks, um, they're not the only ones who create money. Uh, commercial banks create money. And commercial banks, um, unfortunately, are in rude health. I say unfortunately because this is unfortunate for the Fed because the Fed's trying to stop the inflation. Um, and this is, a, this is an obstacle to them stopping the inflation. But basically, um, U.S. banks now have never been so um, uh, strongly capitalized. They've never had uh, so much liquidity. If you look at the, uh, the chart, Fed problem number seven, uh, that shows you the red line shows you the proportion of their assets that are risk assets, i.e. loans and securitized loans, which are at a record low. And the blue line shows you the proportion of their assets, which are basically cash, near cash and uh, uh, and government securities, uh, all of which are highly liquid. Not quite HQLA, but very, very similar kind of idea to HQLA, which, of course, is at a massive record high. So banks are really liquid, really well capitalized. And if you look at the next chart, they also have record low provisions uh, and charge offs. So, you know, the banks have just never the only problem the banks have is really narrow net interest margins because we've been at a zero interest rate level. So uh, as the interest rate starts to uh, to come up, the net interest mo- uh, margins widen and banks you'd expect to be um, uh, looking at this as a fantastic opportunity. And guess what? They are. If you look at the most recent, even going back now the last six months, uh, loan growth from the banks, um, despite the fact that um, the private sector's uh, bank deposits are chocker with with cash. Bank of America told us that in the, the uh, cohort that used to have between one and two thousand dollars in their bank accounts pre pandemic, that cohort now has over seven and a half thousand dollars in their um, bank accounts, and for the next cohort up, the um, the two to five thousand. Uh, so they had they used to have an average of three and a half thousand dollars. They now have twelve and a half thousand dollars in their bank accounts. So that, that's where this is where micro meets macro. You know, we can see that there's been a massive increase in private sector bank deposits uh, because of the uh, the PPP and the rest of it. Um, but when you actually talk to the banks, they can actually tell you how much per household that you know translates into. So. Um, so obviously there was going to be no problem with uh, non-performing loans. And obviously, therefore, when the banks had a massive surge in their provisions, they went, oh, that was a mistake. Uh, uh, charge-offs actually declined. They didn't even go up at all. Um, but now you're, you're looking at charge-offs and, uh, and provisions at record low levels. And people will tell you that things are getting worse at the banks on this front. Well, of course they are. 
to some extent because we have inflation. But it's worth bearing in mind they're getting worse from an absolutely record, uh, you know, um, wonderful spot. So the banks are a real problem, real headache for the Fed because the banks want to get out there and they want to lend and they want to lend a lot. They want to bring their uh, risk assets uh, up to a much higher level um, than they than they are at the moment in terms of total assets. And they've already started doing this. So we've got to look at Fed problem number eight. Um, the Fed's QE is often held to be responsible for the increase in money supply that we've seen since the pandemic broke out. But if you look at it, um, you can see that that's the gray line. And the actual increase in the, um, uh, in the money supply is the blue line. So there's an enormous gap. Um, there's a $2 trillion gap between the two. And that $2 trillion perfectly matches the increase that the uh, commercial banks have done in the same assets that the Fed's been buying, i.e. long-dated treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So um, even if the Fed um, slams on the brakes in terms of uh, money supply, uh, it could easily be the case that the, uh, the banks um, counteract QT, possibly more than 100% counteract QT. Um, and that brings me to my very last point you'll be glad to, to hear, which is Fed's problem number nine. All the time it's doing this, all the time it's trying to work out whether it's doing enough uh, and is being aggressive enough in terms of QT and slowing money supply uh, and counteracting um, the positive um, lending from the banks, um, the, the, the financial markets are looking really exposed. Firstly, everything I've described about um, things which are going against the Fed are all happening on Main Street. They're all happening in the real world. The financial markets, who were the ones that benefited greatly during QE when the rest of the economy was, was, was um, dead in the water, uh, now that the boot's on the other foot, the real economy is doing fantastically. And that's a real problem because it means the Fed's going to have to go further and further than it expects uh, to bring it under control. But that means that the financial markets are going to face pressures that they do not like at all in terms of uh, QT and rising rates. And if you look at the yellow circles on this um, Fed problem number nine chart, you can see that particularly in terms of growth stocks, they are um, maybe not quite as overbought as they were uh, at the time of the dot-com bubble, but they are um, in the same sort of territory. Uh, and um, the red line, this is the base, uh, which is the real economy discounted by the 30-year yield. And you can see that's come down very heavily as 30-year yields have gone up. So um, this is going to be a very tough thing for the Fed to, to navigate without blowing up financial markets. In other words, it's going to be very tough for us. James, that was an absolutely brilliant tour de force. Um, I'll throw a few questions your way, and I invite others to uh, raise their hand and come on up. We have a lot of really smart listeners in the room. I'm sure uh, it'll be quite an interesting uh, interchange. Uh, again, James Ferguson, he's with the MacroStrategy Partnership. Uh, he just joined Twitter yesterday. If you're interested in learning more about their services, contact James. You can follow him on Twitter. In fact, James, I, I'm going to ask everyone to give you a follow right now. I, 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 you, you've got, I think, all of, uh, what have you got here? You, you've got all of, 100, oh, you're 148 followers right now. I think you had one yesterday. So let's see how many you, you have before this call is over. But MacroStrategy Partnership, um, some of the sharpest guys I know, really great thinkers. Um, you don't need the same sort of consensual retreaded nonsense from the street they really offer a different point of view and i find it quite compelling actually if so if anyone's got any questions please come on up and and, and james will have at it so james um what is i mean i always try to look at these issues through the lens of like what trying to help the average investor the people that come into these rooms um my takeaway from what you're saying is it's going to be i don't know i don't know what the english word is 
lights out or bollocks or whatever the hell it is. I mean, risk assets to me just look completely skewered. Um, equities, particularly the long duration ones. Um, so what does it mean for you in terms of bonds, the dollar, equities? I think rotationally probably you're favoring, you know, you, you made clear long duration assets are going to get killed. Does it mean that the short duration commodity type things will continue to do well? So put it another way. If you were meeting someone for the first time and you're meeting the 700 people that are in this room, what would you tell them they should be thinking about positioning themselves investment-wise? And I'm not interested in the next sort of week or month, but say between now and the end of the year, what, what, what would you actually want to be positioned? Well, um, if, we, if we start at the, at the, at the end, uh, on my Fed problem number nine, you'll notice that there's a green line at the bottom, and that's, um, that's value. So whilst I wouldn't... Um, advocate uh, piling into all value equities what is um, seems to be fairly clear uh, as we would have expected in a, a sustained period where interest rates were held too low for too long um, growth um, which benefited of course from the very low discount rate being applied to the future stream of uh, earnings did fantastically well as did bonds and they're both now uh, going to have a lot of uh, a lot of potential trouble but the value space didn't the value space hasn't really uh, even sort of caught back into the uh, the tram line since since the great financial crisis. So um, if we look back at the 1970s, it was pretty clear that um, that PEs uh, were the sort of kind of overriding guide to um, how well protected your investments were. Some bank PEs went down to sort of three. I mean, you know, don't don't, don't be surprised to discover that um, a market with uh, um, you know with a high single digit rate of inflation demands a low double digit uh, earnings yield. But um, in that sort of environment, you know, value is going to give you much better downside protection and possibly even some, some decent upside as well. So the first place I would say is that maybe not all financial assets are, are, um, are a recipe for disaster. Um, value, uh, particularly low PE value, should be a protective. Secondly, um, it is historically the case that commodities don't tend to keep performing too long. I mean, basically, a generalized inflation is when everyone, um, the increase in money supply allows everything to go up in price. Maybe not the same time or the same amount, but everything to go up in price. When the Fed starts attacking that, then obviously um, pretty soon it's going to come from a turn from an inflation into a terms of trade situation, which is where you have winners and losers. Some areas and, and uh, groups are going to have to actually make sacrifices um, in order to make ends meet. I don't think we're there yet. Look at the excess money supply we have in the system. Look at the excess deposits that the private sector has. So I still think inflation is going to keep going uh, and surprise the Fed um, uh, for longer, um, probably you know, fairly well into the end of this year. Um, you know, and I think the Fed genuinely still expects this to be transitory and that, and that and inflation will be back down at two or three percent by the end of the year, which I, I, I fear is very unlikely to happen. Um, but it does mean that once the Fed starts putting the brakes on, uh, we start turning more into a terms of trade than a generalized inflation environment. And that means that um, if the oil price is going to go, for example, higher, then something else has to has to come lower. People have to stop spending so much on on something else. And when that bun fight starts, it tends to take the steam uh, out of the commodity uh, boom. So commodities tend to do well only really in the first year or two of, of an inflationary period. Uh, and then they, they run out of steam. And the other thing to bear in mind is that historically, QE has been very good because it's inflationary um, uh, at pushing bond yields up. 
QT, because it's inherently deflationary, should be pretty good at putting a cap on bond yields and starting to uh, to bring them back down. But again, the point I'm, I've been trying to make in this presentation is that um, the Fed may think we're only you know three or four months away from that happening, and I I really don't think that. I think we're a year and three or four months away from that happening. So for the time being, I still think um, the Fed and the bond market are way behind the curve, um, and I think um, that precious metals, which have done absolutely nothing, uh, uh, and uh, and and properly proper value stocks that not only have a nice low uh, PE, high earnings yield, but but also have uh, a decent moat. Uh, are the places that I would concentrate my money. Right. And um, the long duration stuff, I mean, what, what I'm kind of scratching my head about is uh, sort of piecing together um, what you think is going to happen. First of all, what, what do you think, what do you think is going to happen to inflation and bond yields in, say, over the next six to 12 months, in your view? I think the 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 big risk um Charlie Munger always says that you should take the probability of your risk and multiply it by the magnitude of, of the, uh, the, the gain or the hit. And I might give a relatively low probability to the fact that the bond market goes back to the way it behaved pre-GFC. But before the great financial crisis, the normal premium that the 10-year bond investor, treasury bond investor, demanded over the 10-year rate of inflation was 300 basis points. Now, the 10-year rate of inflation at the moment is uh, 2%, and it'll be 2.4 by the end of the year. So uh, a 300 basis point premium on that takes us to 5 5.5% uh, yield on the uh, bond market. And that's an average. Historically, when you were actually going through an inflationary period, you'd be above that average. So you might be... Uh, four or 500 basis points above. So the chance that the bond yield goes to something truly horrific is not negligible. And the implications of that are, are monstrous. So hold on, James. Uh, someone just back to a bad joke attempt come here. Um, someone just told me to spit out their coffee. I want to repeat, repeat that again. You think... You think yields are going to go up considerably from here? Is, is, that, what you're, is that what you're saying? Oh, no. no now, now you're taking words out of my mouth. Sorry. <clears throat> okay, so so um, some work, uh, work by a guy called Joseph Gagnon at the um, Peterson Institute um, went and looked at all the variables that um, that might... Um, he was actually trying to see if, if the bond yield predicted inflation, and he discovered it, it definitely didn't. Uh, and the closest correlation he could find, and this is not just in the US, this is, this is across Western uh, developed markets, the closest correlation to the 10-year bond yield was the historic average 10-year... Uh, preceding um, CPI. So if you take the the average inflation rate uh, of the prior 10 years, um, at the moment, that's, that's got us at about 2% in the US. The, the historic premium on average that the bond market demanded as, as its inflation protection. So if I buy, if, I'm, if my last 10 years, the, um, the inflation rate was 2% and I'm buying a 10-year bond at 2%, I'm, I'm almost guaranteeing um, if history repeats itself, that I make a zero real return. Now, historically, bond investors weren't that interested in making a return, but they were interested in not making a loss. So they used to demand a premium over um, the 10-year average inflation rate. And that premium um, over the, the 40, 50, 40 years, I think it was, up until the great financial crisis, um, was on average uh, just under 300 basis points. 
So at any particular time until the great financial crisis, which was very deflationary, don't forget. So it meant that the bond market stopped demanding its inflation protection buffer. Um, but up until the great financial crisis, the bond market, um, you could always tell someone pretty much what the bond yield would be by asking them what the 10 year average CPI uh, uh, was and adding uh, 3%. So right now that would make the bond yield 5%, um, which even that I think is for many people quite an eye watering uh, sort of idea. But it's worth bearing in mind that, 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 that 300 basis point premium was an average during any period where the inflation was actually going up. Um, at that time, uh, you would have a premium. So the last time that CPI was this high, I think I'm right in saying the 10-year Treasury yield was 12%. Right. No, for 100%. 100%. So you um, know, that, 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 that may be a low probability outcome, but it's an extremely damaging outcome so you've got to multiply the low probability you might think that's only a 10 or 20 percent probability yeah yeah I, I get it i get it but let, let's put it another way i get what you're saying it's a bit probability distribution let's put it another way yields the 10 years gone from what 320 to 270 it's come off about 50 basis points in the last uh, few weeks for all the reasons that we know um if i had to if you had to guess i'm not gonna i'm not trying to pin you down just try, I'm, just, I'm just trying to just trying to sort of get a sense of just how how negative or positive you are on bonds i mean would you short bonds here right now i mean do you think the do you think the 10-year will go to will go to three and a half or four forget about getting crazy i mean or do, or do you think that I mean, the the picture you paint is one of a, an economy which is stronger than a lot of the talking heads in the mainstream media would have you believe they're all prattling on about well you know rates have gone up and something's going to break and blah 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 and they and they and they cherry pick whether it's the bank lending data or housing prices rolling over and they weave a narrative of an impending recession. Um, that doesn't sound like the prayer book that you're reading from. Or, I mean, so therefore, you know, from here, let's put it this way. Let's put you on the spot. But, you know, next 50 basis points in rates, I think, think, think the tenure goes up or down from here in terms of rates. Um, I, I think this, ga this game ends in recession or the Fed um, loses its nerve because the pain in the financial markets is too great. Um, and then we're stuck with kind of having to deal with inflation. And that means that the bond yields go super high. But but the getting to the recession, I think everyone's doing a, oh, my God, we've just gone from an inflationary bubble to I'm not so sure now because the Fed's going to do QT. And they think that means that we, we turn on a hat pin from an inflationary bubble and we go to recession. You know, um, the rate of growth in the in the first quarter, nominal rate of growth of the economy was uh, double digit. Right. So, have, you, uh, have, have you had a look at some of the, uh, in, I'm talking about the U.S. now, there's been a lot of commentary about there's been a massive buildup in inventories uh, and you're going to see considerable destocking coming through and that's going to put, you know, the kibosh on growth a little bit. Is that something you've paid attention to or you're just dismissive of? Uh, no, no, no. I, 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 you know, the, the increase in uh, inventories is, um, is, is quite uh, large and noticeable. But it's from an incredibly low level. So right. the, the increase in goods inventories, uh, if you only look at the first derivative, is exactly the sort of trigger that sends Wall Street economists uh, off on the, you know, what do I talk about this quarter type right. run. 100%. But they don't, they don't do a, a Warren Buffett and sit back in their armchair and go, yeah, but hold on. Let's look at the last two years. Right. The other Excellent. thing to bear in mind is that, you know, lockdown sent, you know, made everyone sort of stay in their bedrooms and order stuff on the internet. So goods have shot off uh, way above their pre-pandemic trend, whereas services aren't even back to their pre-pandemic trend.
So the the other thing that we should expect is um, that goods hand over the baton to services and services uh, take up the running. And don't forget, services are 50% larger than goods. So um, from a from an economy point of view, that that's another really big super tanker that's hard for the Fed to uh, uh, to slow down. That's so awesome. I, I think um, I think the the next significant move on bonds is definitely down. I don't, sorry, I'll take scrub that word definitely, most likely. <laughs> when you say the move on bonds, meaning 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 the, the bond price is that correct? Sorry, or, yes, the bond yeah, price. Okay. So bond yeah, price. Yields, okay. I got it, got it, got it. Okay, all right. Have so, upside risk and and a small amount of really really serious upside. Excellent, risk. excellent. All right, so we've got some uh, we've got some friends up here. Um, we're going to go first to uh, Dr. Jim Walker, and then we're going to have KFab and then Alpha. Hey, Jim, good, Dr. Jim, good to see you again. How you doing, man? Hi, George. Yeah, very good, and uh, really happy that it's a time of day that I can listen to the uh, the, the, the Twitter Spaces. Uh, that suits me. Yeah, fine. And, and I also think you got someone who goes to the same church as you, so you, so maybe you guys want to have a get a room together or something like that. So, so, so Jim, I don't know if you know James, but why don't you have at it? No, we, we, we don't know each other, I don't think, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to um, to, to the presentation, James. I, I couldn't agree more with uh, with the analysis. Uh, obviously, I'm coming from a more of an Austrian uh, back, background and backdrop, but uh, it pretty much resonates with me. But I just wanted to ask you one question that, that uh, I, I'm not sure whether it's, it's going off in a, a, the, the right a tangent or not, but I know that you've got the chart in there that shows that banks have got uh, extreme liquidity and the, the very low provisions and charge-offs, and, and that I get. But what worries, no, it doesn't worry me because I think this is what's going to happen. Um, what is behind that, I think, is the, the exceptionally low interest rates that we've had uh, basically for a decade that has allowed the banking books, not just in uh, America, but uh, in Europe in particular, to look much, much better than they actually are. And the reason I say that is that uh, the, the, if you go, go to the Global Financial Stability Report that the IMF produced in October 2019, where they talked about corporate debt at risk, what they uh, were projecting on their model, now whether it's a good model or not is uh, maybe uh, open to question, but what they were projecting in their model was that if interest rates got to about half the level of the global financial crisis, and that's around about 3%, let's say, um, and economic growth slowed down, and maybe your point about it not slowing down that quickly is really important here, the economic growth slowed down to half the level of the economic growth rate in the financial crisis, then $19 trillion worth of debt in the global system would be at risk of failure. Of that, um, what, what they, they, they expected was that 40% of US corporate debt was at risk of failing. And at the same time, none of that really even addresses the zombie companies that have built up in the books. Some of that would be included in the uh, corporate debt at risk, but not all of it. And that's the, the only thing that makes me think that um, what, what you're saying about the banking system being able to, uh, to, to fire up and take us to a new level might actually prove not to be the case. I think the banks are actually much, much weaker and much, much more at risk 
than anybody in the market's expecting at the moment. Well, I think that's um, uh, I mean, that's a really interesting point of view. Um, the only thing I would say in my defence, because one of the one of the obvious problems that you have after an extended period where the central banks have been um, messing with prices, particularly interest rates, is that you know we don't know the sorts of things we maybe used to know. Now we have to kind of guess because we know that the prices are distorted and the the signalling is distorted. But I I would say in my defence that the banks, because they have got uh, record amounts of, of um, uh, loss-absorbing capital, record amounts of liquidity, and record low charge-offs and provisions, can take quite a lot of damage before it goes wrong. And, and at, for them at the moment, the big opportunity, they, they're, not, they're not worried about um, um, failure to pay non-performing loans. They're, they're, they're interested in the, the net interest margin opportunity. They may come to regret that, don't get me wrong, but... Uh, not least because, you know, banks should be basically looking at a business model that has a decent ability to cross the hurdle rate that they're charging for the loan. But the hurdle rate, as, as you're alluding to, has been too long and is still too low, sorry, for too long. Um, and therefore, the banks are not necessarily making productive loans, which is the implicit assumption we make. So I think it's a really good point. But I think we have I think we have a surprisingly robust economy first, then the, then the Fed doubles down then it all goes to hell. So, 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 so again, the outcome you may agree on, but the, well, I think what's interesting here, it's the path that we get to it. Jim, would that be, would that be a fair? Would that, yeah, would no, that no definitely, uh, George, and it certainly wasn't meant as a criticism yeah, uh, no, at no. all, James. It was actually more a, uh, an observation and a concern that I think um, maybe people are overlooking a wee bit. Uh, yeah, well, my, 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 my partner, Andy Lees, to jump straight to that. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't waste any time on the, the, the what might happen first. He goes like, you know, that this is going to end badly. But I <laughs> I just I'm just always conscious of the fact that if you time it wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. No, That's absolutely. Great. That's great. I'm, I'm very good at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Jim. Hey, KFab, good to see you. What's up, my friend? Hey, George. Thanks. Uh, hello, James. Um, so, so uh, the inspiration for this account called Kayfabe is uh, comes from professional wrestling and, and uh, trying to distinguish what's real and what's fake and how that can get clouded at times. And uh, so I wanted to run something fast real quick relative to the Fed. Um, so one of the through this prism, I kind of see the Fed as uh, part fake, part real. So the New York Fed is the real part. That's the shoot, as they would say in wrestling. Uh, that, that's actually, they're, they're like Tom Hayden of The Godfather. They run the protection for the big banks. And if you watch what the Fed actually does, it's through the New York Fed. And, and that tends to be why they're doing what they're doing. Um, the rest of the board and, and the dual mandate and, you know, climate change, all this other stuff, that's all the work. That's the fake stuff. That's for politics. That's the run misdirection so that the New York Fed can keep doing what they're doing. And so, you know, uh, th things like uh, and this is obviously not under the Fed's purview, but, you know, how they've monkeyed around with inflation data. And that's all fake now. You know, owners equivalent rent and the Boston Commission and all that stuff. So that's been institutionalized, like everyone's believing in fake numbers now and pricing off of it. So I, how do you think about um you know, distinguishing between what they're doing, why, uh, versus what they say that they're doing. And how do you reconcile those? Well, the first thing you can do, and it's a very good point you're making, and the first thing you can do is you can look at what the New York Fed is doing 
and pass that through the the um, the the idea as to what the FOMC was saying that they were supposed to be doing, which I did it with my slide Fed problem number four, but I took out a slide that shows what they've done during QE. Um, so probably against um, most people's expectation, um, the Fed, uh, as we know, has, has continued to run QE as, as inflation first appeared uh, over a year ago, proved that it wasn't just base effects. Then six months ago, proved pretty emphatically that it wasn't transitory then proved pretty emphatically that it wasn't even um, under control. Yet during that entire period, the New York Fed, as you say, the, the real bit, actually was doing, uh, was buying more, um, uh, was buying long dated securities more aggressively than it was uh, the short dated securities. So if you like, it was doing even more QE than, than the FOMC mandate um, was uh, was suggesting it should do, uh, particularly in the sort of the latter stages after the emergency, initial emergency bit. So is the New York Fed running its own book uh, or does the New York Fed actually think of itself as being, maybe the New York Fed, uh, I think maybe is too close to the banks and therefore it, it, because it spends every day talking to the banks, trading with the banks, thinking about bank liquidity issues, thinking about bank HQLA regulations, it, its mind drifts away from actually its main job, which is, to, which is as far as the economy is concerned, trying to control um, the inflationary outlook, etc. So I agree with you that the, the New York Fed is the real issue, but I'm not sure that the New York Fed, because it doesn't have to explain itself the way the FOMC does, I think the New York Fed often uh, does things that um, tends to be much more bullish than the FOMC would. It, it did right. less QT than the FOMC suggested it should, and it did more QE than the FOMC suggested it should. Yeah, I guess where I would disagree with you is I, I think you have it inverted. I mean, I think the Fed, the New York Fed is the Fed. The, the, the FOMC is like the political cover. That's the fake part to protect what's actually going on. Because if you look at, you know, in your presentation, for example, what, what's going on in the reverse repo market, the unlimited swap lines that were opened up in 19, you know, all the backdoor European bank bailouts that weren't disclosed for years later in 2008. I mean, how much of what's going on with this continued QE is basically to protect European banks, which are huge counterparties to obviously the big U.S. banks, because all of that would be political dynamite within the context of, you know, actual inflation of 12, 14, 15 percent, where the working class in the U.S. is getting incinerated and you're bailing out European banks back door because there's a U.S. dollar shortage globally. Yeah, well, that's, I, I mean, uh, you, I, I, I'm agreeing with you in the sense that I think the New York Fed has its own agenda and its own agenda relates to the smooth functioning of the financial markets and the banking system. And therefore, it gets in the way of the message, uh, political or otherwise, that the FOMC puts out, which which tends to be more geared towards um, consumption by the press and the masses about how they're controlling the economy and inflation. Um, so I, I I think I actually agree with you, not disagree with you, but to, you know, basically you're right. The New York Fed is where you look to see what's really going on. Um, and my warning is that if the last QT's ending go by, the New York Fed will basically prove to be an obstacle to apparent Fed intentions on QT. So, so James, just staying with that, how can, so when you have folks like Bill Dudley come out and say, you know, the Fed will, if, if the market doesn't go down, they'll, they'll make it go down. I mean, do you think he's serious when he says that? Or is that just, you know, again, a case of watch what they do, not what they say? 
Um, I think it's very much a case of watch what they do, not what they say. But I, I think it's pretty, pretty typical and ironic of Dudley to say things like that because he never would have said things like that when he was, you know, in situ. This is this is the uh, this is the uh, blessed relief of uh, of no longer having to do the day job, and now you can you can start trying to screw it up. Right. So <laughs> right. So so when you see now the last couple of days, you get a relief bounce. Um, you know, you, you, okay. So you had bond yields. You know, the ten year. I'm just let's use the ten year as a proxy. The ten year went from three twenty to two seventy. It's two seventy five as we sit here right now. Um, you know, oil's breaking out again. Um, the 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 Fed. If you if you stop and and, and I mean, can the Fed in their heart of hearts? I mean, on the one hand, yeah, they you know one of the narratives is they want to get inflation down because from political issue. You know, if they had their way, they they never want the market to go down. But the, this question of binding constraints can you solve for X? On the one hand. You got to get inflation under control. And the only way that's going to happen is have a proper recession. On the other hand, they don't want to break asset prices, so they're kind of stuck. It's the Jay Powell's a man without a plan. He goes from careening down the mountainside road from hitting from one guardrail to the other. So, what do you think they're thinking right now? I mean, you know, they, 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 having having the ten year back at two seventy five. The, in you know, explain to me again how financial conditions are tight. You know, pretend I'm a a small child or a golden retriever. I mean, like seriously, like they're they're stuck. Like, like what, what do you think they're they're thinking right now? What's so I think so I think what well, I think what both the um, certainly sort of what the Fed presidents have been saying, Bostic uh, in particular, uh, and and what the bond market's looking at is is back to this. I'll, I'll move off being strategy into being tactical and talk short term very briefly. So we've just had the uh, <coughs> the April um, money supply figure. M2 seasonally adjusted fell um, by a record monetary amount, uh, uh, but obviously that's due to inflation, uh, and by the, the biggest percentage amount that we've seen month on month uh, for about uh, 12 years, since, since January 2010. Now, if you were, if you were basically um, you know, born and bred within the, within the confines of the Fed, you'd say, here we go, it's working already. We haven't even started QT. And money supply growth is already less than zero. Um, and we've only raised rates at a small amount. So this shows that the economy is, is, is quite vulnerable and we won't have to raise rates uh, much further or do much QT before we're basically looking at bringing uh, money supply growth, even on a 12-month basis, down to or below zero, which uh, to take you back to my chart about the post-World War II, we would only have to then hold it there for a year and all the inflation will be out of the system and we can declare victory. Uh, let's just hope that we haven't done too much damage to the stock market, particularly NASDAQ, in the interim. However, there's a really big problem with the fact that the Fed doesn't measure, well, I would say doesn't measure money supply properly, but has this one measure of money supply, M2, as if that is it. And the problem with M2 is that it does include money market funds, which shouldn't be there because it's double counting. Imagine I take money out of my deposit, put it into a money market fund, the money market fund buys a T-bill, uh, that money goes to the Treasury, and the Treasury uses that money to pay the salary of a state em uh, of, a, of a federal employee. So my deposits went down, and, there's, and the federal employee's deposits went up, and, and the two net off. So we should not be including my money market holding, because that's double counting. The Bank of England expressly excludes money market funds from, um, from its measure of broad money supply, but M2 includes them. 
whilst M2 excludes uh, any deposits over $100,000, which back in the 60s when they came up with this rule was a large deposit. Nowadays, arguably, in inflation, it's not, but they still exclude it. It was not never indexed. Um, <clears throat> but more importantly, they also don't include these reverse repos, which are just surged $2 trillion, and they don't uh, include the Treasury General account. So if we look at April alone, what happened in April is they said that there was they adjusted the actual figure, which was actually up. They adjusted down um, to be $200 billion uh, lower. Normal adjustment. That was the biggest adjustment, by the way, that they've made on a percentage basis since 1967. And if they'd done a normal adjustment, it would be a, a $160 uh, billion adjustment. This is because people build up their bank accounts towards the end of the fiscal year. So they've got enough money to pay the tax in May and then they, uh, the seasonality works the other way um, from May through August. But during this period, there was a massive $400 billion increase in the Treasury General account. Now, that's effectively people paying their taxes to the Treasury. The Treasury going, oh, hold on, I haven't got anything to pay that out to just yet. So the fact that everyone seems to, some people seem to have paid their taxes early is uh, counteracting with the... Um, uh, the seasonal adjustment, a record ever seasonal adjustment, to mean that we're falsely arguing that money supply dropped in April, when in actual fact it went up on a month-to-month -month basis that if you annualized it, uh, could be as much as 20%. Got it. And this, uh, is, this, this is the, this is the, Fed, the Fed problem number six, Joe. We have a problem here that, that, that you know, most, if most people look at M2, the Fed does, the, tre the Treasury market does, most investors do. I don't know if this is the first time you've heard anyone criticizing the composition of M2 broad money data, but I imagine it probably is. No, 100%. So, 100%. So no one, no one looks at this. No, 100, 100%. 100%. Listen, well, you know this. We're in this sort of narrative-driven world. Nobody does, no, nobody, you know, does any work. Furthermore, you know, unless you want to fall asleep, nobody does the type of detailed work you do on the monetary numbers aggregates as well. Um, so we'll go, we'll go for another 20 minutes here. Um, if you have a question, anyone, please raise your hand. I have one question from uh, a fellow who's having trouble with his mic. Um, so he says, I have a question about financial repression. What exactly is it in their words? What are the implications and how can the layperson detect it's happening and protect themselves? Well, the, um, the, the, uh, the idea of financial repression is that the state pays um, too low a rate of interest uh, or return on, uh, on your money. Now, obviously, um, there's, there's two problems with that, uh, or there's two things the state has to do. One, it either has to legislate that you have to have a certain amount of your money uh, in the form of loans to the government, i.e., um, you know, look at most financial institutions. If they have uh, long duration liabilities, they must hold long duration assets. And the discounts that they have to put on equities mean that they have to hold these assets in the form of basically government bonds. Uh, and that's been sort of legislated more and more aggressively uh, over the years, even though Warren Buffett's most famous letter, I think it's 1974 or 77, can't remember. Anyway, his famous letter to Catherine Graham when he was but a young startup and he basically said, you know, look at look at the figures. You cannot um, fund your staff's long term pension fund by buying bonds. You, you have to get the return you get um, from equities. Um, and so even though we the, the, we officially know that in inverted commas, the regulators have regulated against that uh, such that uh, um, something like uh, 1987, UK pension funds held over 50% of all their assets in UK equities. 
Now that figure is something like about five. So that's the impact, first impact for for uh, for financial repression. You legislate against um, people, particularly sort of relatively passive investments, um, being in things which aren't to your favour. I.e., you you over extend the demand for government bonds, and I, and I think they thought QE was that as well. You know, if you increase the the demand for government bonds, you should be able to get the yield uh, down. I don't know if it necessarily worked that way. The other thing you can do is you can manipulate the data on what real returns are. So you manipulate the data on inflation to make it look through hedonics um, and through, uh, uh, I don't know if people are familiar with um, the the adjustments that they make uh, on inflation, but there's some quite interesting um, uh, figures you can look at. The the Ford F-150 truck is one of the few um, vehicles, well, few products that basically remains essentially unchanged for long enough that you can look at how um, they have, uh, how the, the difference in the price is different to the official inflation rate because it's apparently an improved product. Um, that's probably true, but it does mean that, that when the officials have finished um, with adjusting inflation, um, then that gives you a very distorted figure. And if you think about uh, that in terms of comparing the CPI basket with, shall we say, the cost of education or um, with financial assets, you can see how very differently, or houses, you can see how very differently uh, these different things, the inflation of these different things moves. So manipulating the inflation um, down and uh, manipulating uh, people's ability to uh, not but hold your debt, um, uh, those are the two best ways to do financial repression. And they, they've both been um, fairly rampant over the last three or four decades. 100%. Okay, so we have a question now. Um, Alpha speaker, Alpha watcher, the floor is yours. You have a question? Please unmute yourself. Yeah, thank you. Uh, sorry that I was cutting in and out. Sometimes my range is not predictable. You know, I'm a very simple person and, you know, I am very risk averse. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, right now, I'm entirely in a cash position and, and hold 50, and, a, and probably 75% of my position is now treasury bonds when I saw the yields kick up to 3%. The reason being is I don't look at what the Fed is doing and I'm not sure if that's a mistake. All I do is I see that debt and de- demographics continue to get worse we've been in secular decline since the 1980s based on economic productivity we've only been able to fake the economy by pulling aggregate demand forward with lower and lower interest rates and i just see it as a safe position to own treasury bonds because i don't foresee a situation where yields can actually go alpha alpha i'm gonna have to interrupt you do you have a question for james please yeah so do you see some anything wrong with holding an entirely cash position and t-bond position over the course of the next six months to one year when we're in this transition period if if uh as rates can't really go higher without crashing the entire economy right i mean because lending demand has fallen off of a roof in, in addition to uh refinance and mortgage applications uh with these higher rates in the um 35 years i think it was 38 years i think it was actually that ended in 1982 um the real return on government bonds was um negative for 38 years so don't ever believe that you're safe, not in real terms, um, holding government debt. Um, so I, I think you're, you're, you're sounding to me like someone who maybe started in 1982. The, the, the lessons that this most recent generation have learned, that bonds give you the same return as equities, but without the volatility, um, that the 60-40 um, equity bond uh, portfolio 
the, these ideas are all predicated on on interest rates going down and um, uh, you know uh, an inflation staying quiescent. Um, Andy Haldane, who was the um, chief economist at the Bank of England until last summer, he worked out he got his his gnomes to work out that um, the interest rates that we had last summer were the lowest in the world for five thousand years. So if you want to bet on one thing, I bet on uh, interest rates generally along with inflation going up, in which case cash and bonds is not a safe place to be. Right. Sorry. James, what what is, um, let's just talk about profits for a second um, and productivity numbers. So you've had disastrous productivity numbers. Um, Profits, I don't know if Dr. Jim is still uh, listening. Jim, are you still there, Jim? Dr. Jim? Unmute yourself, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. So, So Jim, could you just, maybe you'll ask the question better than I, if we could speak to corporate behavior and profits and all this, you know, you set out a very eloquent argument a couple of months ago. Where you're in this space. You were talking about, and I'll just paraphrase it, sort of the ex-ante versus the ex-post world that we're trying to analyze companies and economies viewed through the lens of what the world was, not necessarily what it is. And, you know, you, you reminded us of your age and that when you started in the 70s, one had to be cognizant of, um, of, of inflation and we had life over spiteful accounting and Depending, you know, given what's happening to pricing and inflation, it's not even clear what if companies even know if they're if they're if they're making money or not. Now, what you're seeing is widespread people jacking up prices, rightly or wrongly. And so, James and Jim, I know James, you want to go with this first. It seems like a complete mess in terms of um, productivity and what's happening to profits. You know, certain sectors they can gouge, others they can't. So. And in, in, in profits are important. It, it drives capital spending. And so, uh, James, why don't you go first, and then and then Jim, you follow up. So, James, do you have any thoughts about the, the horrible productivity numbers and what's happened to corporate profitability in this whole in this whole situation? Yeah, I, I think that the um, you know um, it's been too long since we had inflation, and people have got very complacent about what inflation is. But if you look back at the inflation, you can see that this is a really tough environment for investors. And I think one of the most important reasons for that is that you get a double whammy with inflation. So firstly, inflation erodes um, margins. It erodes margins because it inflates uh, your working capital um, and, and therefore it's, uh, it's constantly demanding more of you without necessarily delivering more. And you have to um, keep uh, trying to keep pace with the, the increase in your costs uh, by increasing your prices. But pricing, as we know, is probably one of the most difficult challenges uh, in a volatile pricing environment um, that companies face. But not only are companies' margins being squeezed, but also investors are demanding more inflation protections. It's not just bonds where, infl- where investors demand, um, you know, um, an inflation, a protection against inflation buffer in terms of yield. You look at consider equities in terms of earnings yield. History shows that um, investors demand, you know, something to cover for inflation plus uh, a higher yield even than that uh, from their from their investments, which means that you have firms that are are seeing that their PEs get eroded at the same time that the E in their PE is getting eroded as well. Um, so I, I think um, to act complacently about to listen to the people who never saw inflation coming then when they did see it coming thought it'd be transitory and even then when it proved not to be transitory they still think it'll be gone by christmas to listen to those guys 
tell you not to worry about inflation, then it won't be sticky, I think is a mistake. Inflation historically, once it gets into wages, is sticky and it's a real nightmare. So I'm afraid um, we should get used to the fact that, uh, you know, it, it's very tough for firms to, to keep margins wide, let alone widen them in an inflationary environment. So d- 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 Dr. Jim, uh, meet yourself. What, what are your thoughts on the subject, Dr. Jim? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, James is uh, hitting all the right points. Um, and I know he's taking it specifically through to wages. The only thing I would say um, in addition to that is that once inflation is unleashed, the, the problem is that every other price in the system has to start adjusting to the input costs and the uh, the changes in the price levels relative to where they are. And that's the, the, the whole point really about um, not knowing where the inflation goes, because it takes on a life of itself. And unless you actually stop the inflation, which of course is really money supply in its tracks, um, then price inflation through goods and services can just go anywhere for as long as it takes until you get that monetary control back in place. So it's really not just a question about, uh, oh, you do a couple of interest rate rises and then everything is okay. That, that, as James is saying, is just not the way that inflation works. Once you've unleashed it, it goes in all sorts of directions, but it doesn't go away until you stop the monetary rot. And that, I'm afraid, going back to uh, kayfabe's uh, comments, is where I think there's a real problem with the the Fed, because they're not going to stop the monetary rot as far as I can see. I've just finished the the Christopher Leonard book, The The Lords of Easy Money. Um, And although there's bits of it I'm not quite so sure about, there's there's elements to it that I think are, uh, are really quite fascinating, and not least about how the Fed reacted to the, the repo problem in 2019, was it? Um, and to the fact that they were cutting down, as they saw it at that point, uh, in terms of their balance sheet, and then how that uh, caused the stock market to fall. And then they just unleashed everything again. And if they do that kind of thing, then we just do not get out of this inflation cycle because it's already in the system. The only way you're going to get it really out is you, you, need, you need a big economic contraction, do you not? Correct. Yeah. Well, but you need deflation in the money supply, and deflation in the money supply never comes without a cost in the real economy. Right. So what you guys are saying, and it's funny, you're saying it much more eloquently than I. I keep saying equities are toast, equities are dead, because FOMO is dead, TINA is dead, BTFD is dead. Goldilocks is dead. That's the most important thing. Goldilocks is dead. All right. So either what you're saying to me, guys, is inflation is going to keep bubbling on, as James is saying, or if they finally got some religion and, and, and they mean what they say and they've got to really bring a recession on to bring inflation down, you know, good luck with your corporate earnings. So, so flip a coin. You know, the one thing you're not going to get is what equities demand, especially at these valuations, which is Goldilocks. Would that be a for G- Dr. Jim or for James, would that be a fair summary? Um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit worried because I'm agreeing with everything um, Jim says and he's agreeing with everything I say. Um, but uh, and that's never good for to listen. No, to. but James, um, James, but James, hold on, I got to interrupt you. you. You guys are weirdos. Okay, you're. I say it affectionately. You're, you're, you, you don't recognize. You, 
you're like the one in a million, all right? So it's not representative of anything. It's, it's, you guys are the real odd lot indicator. So I'm not going to allow you to, to, to that argument. There, there are a few guys as smart as you or, or as Jim. So, um, so, so, so carry on. I had to nip that one in the bud. Sorry. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, uh, as Jim says, once you've let the, the inflation genie out of the bottle, uh, and you can usually know you've done that when it gets into wages, I think, um, then then you can't really get it back back under control until you bring uh, a, a deflationary recession through the system, as um, Volcker did, uh, or as the the Fed did after the end of the Second World War, sort of 1949 period. Um, so really, now we're now we're just looking at the Fed and saying. Um, will that be as easy as they think? And do they have the balls to do it? I don't think it'll be as easy as they think for all the reasons I said in my presentation. And I also don't think they have the balls to do it. I, I think when we get to a certain level of pain, they're going to go back to the faucet and go, oh, what would happen if we turn this back on? So, George, um, yeah. George, can I ask a question then on a follow-up with what, what James just said there? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, so th this wage price viral concern, um, you know, I think we agree that the uh, the the, infl the official inflation data is is as I, as I joke, phony baloney. Um, and and even with the, the, that level, you're, you've got real wages now contracting in um, pretty significantly. Um, so how do you get a a wage price spiral when you've actually got real wages potentially going sharply negative, and that's before we really start to have an unemployment problem? Well, the way I um, I would interpret that is not so much that wages, which are a lagging indicator, uh, are negative in real terms, um, but more the fact that the, what wages are at at the moment tells you what the man in the street thinks inflation is. So it's all very well for the Fed to say, oh, I don't really think underlying inflation is much worse than at core 2 to 3%. And I also reckon we're going to get it back down to that level by the end of the year. None of that is relevant if the man in the street is telling you and his employer is telling you that actually uh, on a lagging basis, it's near as a six percent. And and if we wait a bit longer uh, for that lag to work its way through, you know, who knows, maybe even seven or eight percent. So uh, I, I wouldn't look at today's real wage figure because I don't think you're, you've got a temporal mismatch there. Um, but I would look at it and say, you have just broken a generation-long um, labor market that was quite happy with a 3% pay rise, give or take 1% in either direction, for 35 years. Now, that is no longer the case. That That is letting the cat out of the bag. All bets are off. Yeah. Can I, can I, George, can I just say on that one, because James and I are in the, uh, the same country, and we're just about to find out how far off uh, the idea that we've got wages under any control at all is going to be because uh, the train drivers are about to come out and strike. And what they're looking for uh, is not 6%, it's, it's certainly not 2 or 3 it's 11 um, And guess what? When that goes and uh, rail prices go up and everybody's real incomes come down as a result of it, uh, then everybody else is going to start looking for something in the same range in their next price in the, in the next wage negotiation. Right. I mean, th this is the situation that we're in, and that's uh, it, it, it cannot stop, except I've got to say, I think while we've been talking, Kyle Bass thinks it's all over by Christmas, by the way. He, he reckons that the, the Fed is going to hike rates not much over 200 basis points in this cycle, so we're halfway there, uh, and then they're going to need to pause and reverse course. So um, 
after the shallow recession early next year, uh, we're back to Goldilocks. Don't worry, Kyle says so. Yeah, great. Well, he's a famous bull. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 uh, hmm. I, I, I do not wish us to spend any more time on Kyle Bass. Let me just put it that way. All right, we've got five more minutes. Um, any other questions, raise your hand. Otherwise, this has been a uh, absolutely fabulous. So, J- Dr. Jim, anything else you want to say? I mean, just as long as we got you here, because everyone lo- loves to hear your comments. Any other any other thoughts that, I mean, James offered up, delivered up a real tour de force. That was brilliant. And it sounds pretty similar to your view. Is there anything you would add, Jim, Dr. Jim? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. A real tour de force. I've already tweeted that out. Um, it was uh, simply superb. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the only um, one aspect which still kind of bothers me slightly about our measurements of inflation and deflation is that we, we are all concentrating on CPI as the uh, the real measure of inflation, whereas in actual fact, and my, my strong belief is that uh, we, we need to amalgamate CPI and asset prices to really have a notion of what inflation is. Well, the good news is that the asset prices are deflating. Uh, it's just that they've got, they've got an awful long way to go to deflate us back to anything like normality. They, they will destroy money in the system. And I think that's the, the, the key thing that we've got to look forward to, that uh, asset price deflation is going to be the, the real, um, what would you say, uh, changing game in terms of the, the monetary uh, system there. It's going to destroy lots and lots of loans. Defaults are going to be crazy. Uh, and that's going to get us back on track. It's just a wee bit painful. I mean, Dr. Jim, when you talk about asset price deflation, certainly in real terms, I guess the question is, will it be in absolute terms and nominal terms? Or if they sort of whiff and chicken out, yeah, you know, the, 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 it'll be destroyed another way. We'll just, we'll just. Well, you, you, you know, the interesting terms. thing, George, is that if you look at the S&P um, in the, the, the two years following the dot-com bust and then in the two years of the, uh, the, the global financial crisis, the, the S&P went down two years in a row, and it went down between uh, 10 and 20% in each of those years. So, you know, where we are just now is just the start. This is like, you know, baby steps towards the, the real correction. So it's, uh, who was it, uh, Jim? We're dating ourselves. What's, what's the old song? Not from Traffic. Uh, only the beginning. I'll have to play it the next time. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, James, I can't thank you enough for what's been a masterful, masterful uh, job. This has been awesome. Um, I hope, you know, as your first, I know it's your first time, James, so hopefully it wasn't too uh, jarring for you, and and, and that you'll come back. Um, And again, if anyone wants to uh, learn more about uh, Absolute Strategy, sorry, Absolute Strategy, sorry, Macro Strategy Partnership, uh, please reach out to James or reach out to myself. Um, you know, I'm sure it wouldn't be adverse to getting some more new clients. This has been an absolutely tremendous, tremendous room, James. I can't thank you enough on behalf of everybody. I hope you come back again. I hope you enjoyed it. We certainly learned a lot, and um, I really want to thank you so so much. So, it was extremely, extremely well played, James. And thank you very much. Well, thanks to you and Jim for the uh, the very kind comments. And uh, yeah, I I joined Twitter yesterday, so that that's uh, <laughs> right. very new so, for me. So, so okay, so so now you're up to 300. You joined yesterday, James. You're probably setting the record for fastest increase 
uh, in number of followers. You're up to 306. And I'm going to ask everybody in the room to follow James. Let's see if we can get him up to 500 um, today. Uh, and so this has been fabulous. And um, I look forward to, uh, you know, having you speak in these rooms in the future. It's been wonderful. Again, well, James, I, I, have some, I have some teenagers in my house that will scoff at, at three or five. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell that your, your Twitter list is bigger than their Twitter list. So there you go. All right. James, thanks so much. Uh, we'll, we'll see you before too long. Thanks, everybody. This has been awesome. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.